Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields. We will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Season three, episode five, The Sunday Slasher. So this week we're going to leave the story of Henry Lee Lucas and look at another known serial killer who was in the area known as the Texas Killing Fields, which for those of you who are just joining us, maybe this episode, the Texas Killing Fields is the area south of Houston along Interstate 45 and Highway 6 all the way to Galveston. So today we're going to talk about Carl Eugene Watts, or also known as Coral Eugene Watts. And to be honest with you, I have found it both ways, but I don't know what it actually says on his birth certificate, is whether or not he was named Coral or whether or not he was named Carl. Um, it seemed to go by both names at different points in times, but primarily what you're seeing is Coral Eugene Watts. And, and that's if you want to do research. I think that's yeah. pretty much what where you're going to get more information is, is the Coral. Yeah, if you're Eugene. looking for more information, I would look for Coral. Um, Coral Eugene Watts was uh, later known as the Sunday Slasher. So... Um, he Watts was born in Texas, but moved to Michigan when he was about two years old as his parents divorced. For many years, he was raised by a single mother until she remarried. And then when he was eight, he got sick with meningitis and polio. After that, he began to have a lot of trouble in school. I think this is really important um, because there are some things that can happen to you, especially as a young child, which can cause some of that frontal lobe damage and not making any excuses for anybody. But when you look at the meningitis and polio at eight years old, and then his personality kind of completely changing him, not being able to pay attention in school and having that type of trouble, it does seem to kind of develop at that age for him no i don't totally believe that because it's like that one study that i was talking to you about with the strep throat uh -huh. and it's that virus that gets into the body that affects children so i could see that something like that would be terribly you know devastating on a young child right and you know there's obviously some sort of of damage here especially you know for him academically but i think that possibly that may have caused some more damage then too um watts was watts first known victim was in june of 196 
69, when he was about 15 years old, he assaulted Joan Gave, a 26-year-old Caucasian woman on his paper route. He punched her in the face repeatedly. When he was arrested and asked why he attacked her, he said he just wanted to beat somebody. So he's 15 years old, and he's already having those types of impulses. He was sent to a mental institution. Um, they said that he has low IQ. I get differing on his IQ being either like 60 or 75. I think it's just went different times that he was tested, but he definitely had a lower IQ. Um, and they said he had delusional thoughts, but he was released when he was 16. Um, so when he's released, he goes to high school. Um, in high school, seems to do okay. Gets involved with um, boxing, is a golden glove champion. He also receives a football scholarship to Lane College in Tennessee, which he attends for a short period in 1973 before he uh, was injured. He had a knee injury and he dropped out. Again, I think that you do have to possibly say to yourself with boxing football hits, especially in that type time period, you know, there is this possibility that you have sustained some brain damage. Absolutely. You know? I mean, how many times can you get whacked in the head or without, you know, thinking that you're not going to sustain some right. kind of injury, yeah. right? That can maybe have long lasting results. So he then went to college in Michigan in 1974, but he had trouble in his classes. So in October of 1974, he knocks on the door of a woman named Lenora Kinsey. He got her to open the door. He told her he was looking for somebody named Charles. She didn't know a Charles, but opened the door to give him some paper to write a note and leave it on the door next door. So he's basically saying, I think my, Char my friend Charles lives next door. You know, can I, is he here? Can I get? get some paper to write him a note, um, which I think she does kind of what any of us would do. That seems like a very innocent thing. And so she opens up the door and says, let me grab some paper. And at that point in time, he slips inside. He strangles her until she passes out. Um, so the record for that, um, she does actually survive. But the record states that Watts begins killing when he's 20 years old in 1974. He stabbed Gloria Steele, an African-American woman who was uh, 19 in Michigan. A witness said she saw a black man near Gloria's apartment looking for somebody named Charles. So exact same ruse that he had used before with Lenora. He, well, yeah, why would he change it? It worked once. Let's try it again. You know? Yeah, exactly. So she was found stabbed to death the next day. She had been stabbed 33 times in the chest with a woodworking tool. Her windpipe was crushed. So a couple of things about this, though, is the record states that he begins killing when he was 20. There's a there's a period of time, a short period of time here um, where I do think that he could have possibly killed some other people. I'm not a hundred percent sure that from the time from the age of sixteen to the age of twenty, we know that he assaulted other people. Um, well, and he obviously has some rage issues, right? I mean, this woman, you know, to be stabbed thirty-three times. I mean, that's overkill. Yeah, you know. Um, but you just, 
I can't put a pin on it and say 20 years old was the time that he started killing. I think that there, there are possibly some cases out there that still could be tied to him at an earlier time period. But for all intents and purposes, from what we know, Gloria is the first victim that he actually kills. Okay, and so maybe he didn't kill until the very first time in his 20s. He was definitely assaulting people. Oh, yeah. Oh, I he mean, was he, assaulting you know, people. He's definitely, you know, acting on his impulses and rage at this point. So, so a few weeks after Gloria was killed, uh, a Diana K. Williams noticed a black man wandering around her apartment complex looking for a Charles. And then Coral knocked on her apartment with the same ruse. He pushed in her into her apartment and began to attack her. While this was happening, her phone rang. And in the struggle, like she's trying to get to the phone. So that's kind of part of what's happening. The phone's ringing. She's trying to get to the phone. And in the struggle, it knocks off, gets knocked off, and she begins to scream. Watts runs off, and William later identifies him in the lineup. Watts is arrested and charged with assault. He admitted at that point of being near uh, the apartment of Gloria Steele, but he did not confess to killing her. And the police did not feel like they had enough evidence to charge him at that point. About a month later, he also admitted to attacking 15 other women. Police did a search of his apartment and they found woodworking tools, but they still did not arrest him for Gloria's murder. Watts was sentenced to serve time again in a mental hospital in jail, and he was released in 1976. Okay, so, you know, it's hard, I think, when you look back at some of this to be very, very judgmental on the decision not to look harder at him for Gloria Steele's murder. But they just felt like they didn't quite have it. Yeah, but, I mean, I guess to me it's, like, the mental institution lockups, that's not helping anything. But it did tend to be the way that they dealt with these types of people assaulting somebody and having that kind of rage back then was, oh, well, you know, need to send them to a mental health institution, they can get some help, and um, and then everything will be fine. It's It's strange because... You know, it's almost like they had almost a little bit more faith in the mental health system than we do today. Yet we know the mental health system is so much better today than it was back then. But yeah, but I don't think today they're necessarily looking at crimes like this and saying, oh, they must have a mental problem. You, you know what right. I mean? I think there's been a lot more research to say there's something else going on there. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, not to say if he, you know, has schizophrenia or is truly delusional, then that might explain some things. But to go undiagnosed, yeah, it could definitely have some play here, right? right. I mean, most of the time you're diagnosed with that in your early 20s anyway, so I don't know. Well, and, you know, I think assault was taken a little less serious, I guess, back then. You know, I don't know. I mean, we've seen well, that. We definitely kind of... know that women didn't have as much rights as far as assaults and, and yeah. rapes and stuff like that. I mean, we do know that. They also often played it as like, oh, she shouldn't have been there or put herself in that situation. Right. So 
that could happen. Yeah, I do wonder whether or not there was some looking at it of like, why did you open your door to him? Or, you know, you don't know him. Yeah. You know? Or if, why did you invite him inside? So I, I don't know. You know, it just, I mean, and you're talking like, so now we're going up into the 80s, right? So this is like really when people start coming on to like stranger danger type mm -hmm. stuff that we've talked about in previous, you know, seasons is this, we know all that now because of things like this. Yeah. You know? Um. So he was released from jail in 1976. Uh, at that point in time, he got married. He did have a, a child. Um, they were married for a few years. And um, then they they got divorced. He got remarried. That marriage um, doesn't seem to be that you can find out a huge amount of information about his second marriage. Uh, but he does seem to be getting into these relationships. He is working. So um, what kind of work did he do? Uh, primarily, so he's, it's kind of a physical, like, labor thing. So he's, he's a mechanic in, um, a couple different places. The woodworking thing seems to be more of a hobby that he does. But, um, but when he ends up, um, being a mechanic, um, kind of taking on kind of odd jobs, uh, at one point in time, he's a janitor for a short period of time. So, you know, kind of like a handyman or yeah. odd and ends kind of okay. um like he didn't have necessarily a career in something no i think his career really was the mechanic uh -huh. um you know i think he definitely had was a skilled mechanic so he was in the detroit area um for a while seemed to spend some time in <clears throat> sorry in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which when you're in the Detroit Ann Arbor area, it's really close to getting you into Canada. So during this time, after 1976, during this time, the Detroit, uh, Ann Arbor, and also um, Windsor, uh, Ontario, up there in Canada, there were 14 women attacked and eight killed. So a Michigan homicide detective, Paul Bunton, was convinced that Watts was responsible for the slew of the murders. One of the reasons is they had actually, um, he had actually been contacted near one of the uh, assaults. And so he was and then looking at his background. So he is convinced at that point in time, he begins to follow Watts um, to see if he would be able to catch him. He planted a tracker on Watts's car. Um, he got other people who, so they were kind of developing like a task force to look at all of these homicides. So he got other people to put pressure on Watts. Watts knew he was being um, watched and certainly that was making him, you know, very nervous too. So in March of 1981, Watts boards a Delta Airlines plane with just a backpack, a sleeping bag, and a small, what they call it as a trunk. I'm thinking it was more of a suitcase, um, headed and headed for Houston. So he had family here, uh, cousins and stuff like that, that he, I guess, was in contact with, but also seems that he was in contact with a couple of people that he had met through work. So had, gets here, has a uh, job as a bus mechanic. And um, so 
Paul Button, the detective, finds out that Watts is in Houston. So he calls the Houston police uh, and informs them that Watts is in his area. And he says that he knows this guy is responsible for these homicides up in his area. And he's positive that Watts will be patrolling for people in the Houston area. So when they get this call, excuse me, you know, part of you thinks that kind of, they probably just kind of blow it off. You know, they're, "Ah, whatever. But in all fairness, they did not. They did not blow this off. They actually began to track Watts while he was in this Houston area. So um, they also put a tracker on him. They did have police uh, watching him and and trolling him, looking at his neighborhood. Um, and they they kept that up for a while, you know, for, for as long as I think they felt like they could. Right. Um, but even like his, um, his landlord and kind of his roommate start to tell him, they're like, uh, I think the cops are watching you, you know, like, what'd you do? And he's like, he tells them, he's like, oh, it's a misunderstanding. You know, I kind of got on the wrong side of this, uh, detective up there in Michigan and it's, it's kind of a misunderstanding. So but when Watts arrives in the Houston area, he does not begin killing right away. Um, maybe it was because he knew he be, was being watched or also because he did find a girlfriend and start to go to church. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> However, more than 700 murders occurred in Houston in 1981. The police department was overwhelmed, underpaid and understaffed. The other issue at the time is the department did not have a permanent chief. Um, so they were doing an intern chief. So Watts would patrol the streets looking at night, looking for a woman that he believed had evil eyes. I just find that to be such an odd statement. You know, like you're just, I don't know. Like, is that your way of justifying your behavior is for some reason you thought they were evil, you know? It's just weird. Well, I have to be honest with you. I um, I find this to be a little strange. But again, though, I think maybe there's some mental illness here. But one of the interesting things about this evil eye thing is some of the victims that he identified as having evil eyes were like, he's driving by and he sees them and he's like, well, their eyes are evil. So I'm not even sure like how he could like make the make, connection make eye contact yeah. with them for long enough to see whether or not they had evil in their eyes it possibly could have been just because they did make eye contact and, and you maybe, know what i mean like really think yeah. about that like oh they've seen me now they must be evil like i don't know it's weird it, it's, it's just a very odd statement again like you said though it could be a, a mental thing so even looking at those statistics that we just talked about homicide detective hw kirsten in May of 1982 said there have been more unsolved deaths and disappearance of women in Houston this year than in the last 12 years. He was worried about that fact that many of these women had gone out late and come partied and were not coming home. Um, So I will tell you, 
you know, at first I was like, well, that kind of puts some some victim blaming on them for going out and partying. I think this actually has to do with more, he's kind of keying in on somebody's stalking yeah, late like at targeting. night. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I took it. You know, um, because at first I was just like, well, that's a lot of blaming, you know, so. Well, I mean, it's the same story you hear time and time again, right? right? They went out, they stayed out too late, they had too much to drink, you know, they were walking home by themselves, uh-huh. that doesn't mean you deserve anything. Right. But that's not how I, I take it from it like his statement there right he's looking at that whole you know there's somebody patrolling late at night plus they have more to kind of go on because they did have the cops from michigan already kind of giving them that idea right so well interestingly enough so at this time when he's pointing that out and they're actually starting that task force to look at that because that's what really comes through is that he's starting to point that out he's looking at all these open cases and he's saying, hey, something's going on here. He's not talking to the police who had that information about Watts earlier. Mm. So even though those two things are happening simultaneously, they're not enough communication. But think technology-wise, you know, if you're in... On March 23rd, 1982, Lori Lister arrives home in her apartment. She is surprised by Watts, who grabs her, strangles her, and then drags her upstairs to her apartment. He choked her unconscious. As he enters the apartment, he realizes that she has a roommate, Melinda Aguilar. He also then grabs Melinda and strangles her. Melinda passes out. He ties her up with coat hangers. And he grabs Lori and drags her to the bathroom where he begins to fill the bathtub. So Melinda manages to um, either like kind of revive or wakes up. I don't, you know, don't know how exactly to explain that, but, um, and she locks the bedroom door with her inside of it. She's still tied up with these coat hangers And in order to get free, she's hearing the bathtub. She's hearing him struggle with trying to, at this point, drown Lori in the bathtub, screaming, trying to figure out what to do. And she goes through her uh, apartment window to a balcony and then falls over the balcony to the concrete and uh, grass below. Now, at least a neighbor has kind of heard this and has called for police. Luckily for Melinda, she's okay. She has some scrapes and some bruises. But with this neighbor, she's now trying to communicate with with the neighbor that Lori's still up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I mean, it it had to be an incredibly chaotic scene. You wonder if Watts even knows that she's missing. Um, Look, maybe not. Watts definitely hears the commotion because at that point in time he he's fleeing from the apartment Mm -hmm. and I don't know if he hears the commotion as much with the neighbors or if because the police are headed in Mm -hmm. with lights and sirens he more hears that because something alerted him anyways right yeah so he's probably like oh crap you know and then tries to go get her and has realized like that door's locked and just goes, mm-hmm. you know. And so yeah, he and was Lori's in the bathtub, like he's trying to drown her. Yeah, he was trying mm-hmm. to drown Lori in the bathtub, and it, and she truly is like 
passed out in this bathtub. Um, the police actually, um, end up, one of the policemen jumps out of the car and chases Watts, the other policeman, um, and there's kind of this whole thing that's in the article. He's, it says he knew he couldn't catch him. And I don't know that, like, to me, it, it kind of reads like a, a TV series where you see one police officer jump out and give chase and the other police officer gets in his car and tries to cut off the, um, the way that that, or whatever, yeah, Yeah, that, that path. And to me, like when you hear the way that it's being explained, the newspaper's kind of saying he knew that he was an older officer and he couldn't catch him. And I don't think that was it. I think it was more like that's their training. Mm-hmm. Like one gives chase and the other one tries to cut off that path because if not, you're both just running after somebody hoping that you're faster than a guy who was a football star, you know, um, I'm sure they didn't know that at the time, but still, you know, but even a boxer. Uh, he also played football he too. Played football yeah. Too. Um, so they so they do manage to get him down, get him arrested and put in the back of the uh, police car. And then, go back to this chaotic scene and at this chaotic scene they've now the neighbor or some um good samaritans have now pulled lori out of this tub and she's alive also you know so this is this is really quite miraculous that both of them had survived that that's incident but um now they have him in custody and so with him in custody things start happening relatively quickly um he's appointed a lawyer uh his lawyer starts to talk to the district attorney about what next steps are and police are very quickly putting things together they now have the information um from the detective in um michigan and they are starting to suspect that he is a suspect in many of the other homicides but the problem for the um district attorney is they don't have any evidence one of the other homicides that he's suspected of is one that occurred earlier that day yeah that was the case of michelle mayday she had just turned 20 years old when she was out celebrating with friends and family she arrived home about 4 a.m And Watts grabbed her as she got out of the car, forced her into her apartment where he strangled her, and then dumped her nude in the bathtub. She was discovered by her mother, who shared an apartment with her. Um, Kind of an interesting turn with Michelle. Uh, Michelle is buried next to her father in Clute, Texas, and on her gravestone reads, Daughter of Mike and Flo, Michelle Marie Mayday, murdered by Coral Jean Watts. He actually, she actually put that on her daughter's headstone so that nobody would forget what happened to her daughter. Yeah, that's crazy. So I don't know if I could do it. So the Harris County DA, John Holmes, said of Watts, he didn't rape them. He didn't steal from them. It's not people he knew. It's just cold calculating killing. A psychologist disagreed. One said that he had schizophrenia who viewed women, women as evil. The other said he had it psychosis another one basically a lot of this went into his iq being 68 but one of the victim's mothers said how could someone with that low of iq outsmart law enforcement in two states and in canada and i think that's you know what's really goes into 
the DA's decision to make a plea bargain with Watts. And we'll get into that a little bit more in the next episode because we want to talk about the cases in this area that kind of connect Watts to that Texas killing field type area. And we want to talk about the confession as far as it goes for Texas. Um, but that's, I think, what they were looking at is, you know, they needed to figure out what cases he was involved in because they didn't have the things at their fingertips to say this is a guarantee. He wasn't caught at the scene of any of the other ones. And unlike the Canada one, they didn't even actually have anybody who described seeing him or you know, anything like the Charles incident, they didn't have those types right. of things. Right. And, and so even though they could look at these lists of cases and look at the task force that they had that thought some of these cases were linked, um, they still didn't have enough to yeah, say, I mean, by this point too, by the time he makes it to, to Texas, he's almost, um, like matured a little bit in his ways, if you right. want to say it like mm -hmm. that, quote unquote, right? He's not using that ruse anymore of like, I'm looking for my friend Charles. He's just straight, just grabbing, grabbing him in the park, just lot, grabbing right? these girls uh -huh. and taking the the moment and the opportunity to do right. so. And he and he is pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think you know, as hard on some of this that this gets that they would make a plea bargain with somebody, and um, on what turns out to be quite a few cases. We'll go over those cases. You can see where they're going. And again, look at where we're at. You're at a point in time where DNA was not being used to link cases. So they had to have more than just mm -hmm. that. Well, and think about it too. I mean, just depending on what kind of um, let's say outerwear he's using to kind of cover up any traces of him. He's not raping these women. No. Right. He's not coming in close contact with them necessarily. I mean, yes, the strangling, right. I won't say mm -hmm. that, but I mean, even up until just maybe a couple years ago with touch DNA, you may not even have anything to go on. Right. You know? So, I mean, up until just maybe five, six years ago, it could have still been a hard case to make. I think definitely it would have been a hard case mm -hmm. to make. Um, and, and linking them all together too. Linking them all together. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's kind of the confusing other thing. I mean, they knew because of what he was doing with um Lister in the bathtub, right? They were pretty sure that he was connected to May Day and her in the bathtub there too. But when you get into some of his other cases and when you look at some of what he did in, in Canada, I mean, in um, Michigan, look at those earlier cases where he was stabbing them, you know, so the, so he's stabbing, drowning and strangling. Um, strangling. Yep. And so, and not all of them are left at their apartments. We'll get into some of these cases where those victims were actually missing. So he, um, they needed him to figure out where those victims were too. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like that officer said earlier that they had those homicides that had gone unsolved and they also had missing victims. Some of those victims are going to actually tie to Watts too. So I think, you know, that's where, where they were at. You know, right. and it's easy to to look at this and be like, I can't believe that, you know, you're making a plea deal with a 
a serial killer, but I think it's it's what they had. And it it's certainly, you know, um it'll be I mean they did it and like you said, we'll get into it in our next episode, but they did it with a plan in yeah. place. You I, know, they so did it, with it plan wasn't place. just like a you know a whim, right. let's say. But to leave a teaser for everybody out there, they did it with a with a good plan in place, but all not all good plans are fool. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners, so please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.